open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2 this morning. Hosea chapter 2, continuing on um, in our study. We want to look this morning, beginning at verse 14 of chapter 2, down through chapter 3 and verse 5. And uh, just want to make a, a note for you to consider as we're reading the text this morning and then going on and working our way through it, that chapter 3 really provides the crux of Hosea's book, of Hosea's sermon. Uh, what God does centers in the work of redemption, the work of covenant faithfulness there in chapter 3. And so, as we're reading this this morning, I'd like you to keep that in mind, now knowing that this is the, the center core, this is center mass for what Hosea is saying all throughout the other 14 chapters of the book. It all comes back uh, to chapter 3. Out of respect for the reading of God's Word, would you join me in standing as we begin by reading Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and following. God says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. And will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will not be mentioned by their names anymore. And that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those people who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar and without ephod or household idols. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning 
in absolute awe of your grace and your mercy to us. We're here this morning because it is by your mercies that we have not been consumed. We are here this morning because of your great love, because of your great faithfulness to us. Father, if we're honest this morning, every one of us identifies with Israel. Every one of us identifies with Gomer. But having been loved with perfect love, having been shown divine favor, we still struggle with sin. Father, our hearts are so prone to wonder. Father, we are faithless and we are unfaithful. But God, we are thankful this morning that our ultimate redemption and our salvation does not depend on we who run, but on God who is faithful. And we understand, Father, that we are here and we will be in heaven someday and we will remain faithful to Christ, not because of our efforts, but because of your mercy and grace that holds us that continually pursues us, that we might be sanctified and we might be made right in your sight. Father, we are undeserving. We are at times even undesirous that you would do this in our lives. But God, we confess your great faithfulness as our song and our theme this morning. A song that will echo for all of eternity. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your loving kindness. Great are your mercies to us. Father, may our hearts be lifted up in praise this morning through the preaching of your word. As we see you revealed in this great letter, this great book. It's in Christ's name that we ask that you would do this. That you would bring great honor and glory to your own name. It's in his name. It's by his finished work. It's by His accomplished redemption for us that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Someone in a recent discussion on the book of Hosea made the comment that the theme of Hosea in their estimation was grace on steroids. And I think that assessment is fair in as far as it goes. But I want us to consider a question this morning. Is Hosea... Merely a book about one act of grace or even a series of acts of grace? Or is the book of Hosea about something larger this morning? I would submit to you this theology this morning as we continue to move into the text that more accurately sums up the entire depth and breadth of what God is doing here in Hosea in Hosea's own marriage, in the nation of Israel, and even for us today. And that theology would be this, that the book of Hosea is not merely about an act of grace or a series of acts of grace, but Hosea is about the magnification of the God of grace. What makes grace so indelibly large in this book is the God who bestows it. The act of grace is amazing. But the God who bestows the grace is even 
more amazing. Consider what we know about God from John, who was the beloved disciple, who uh, was closest to Christ, uh, humanly speaking, uh, of all the apostles in the New Testament. Consider the words of John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where John makes this st- simple yet succinct statement, God is love. He doesn't just say God loves. He says God is love. And so when we read the story of Hosea, we begin to understand the massive implications and nature of John's statement that God not only loves, but God loves out of the reality that God is love. God does not merely show love. It is the essence of who God is. If God is love, then that means several things. There are several implications that we need to consider about the love of God as he demonstrates it for Israel, as he has now extended that to us in the new covenant through Christ, as Hosea is demonstrating to his uh, unfaithful wife, Gomer. We need to understand these implications of God being love. If God is love, then love is infinite. That means that the love talked about in relation to God knows no limitation. God is not limited in his love in any scope. If God is love, then the love here is omnipotent love. That is love with all power and all force. If God is love, then the love in Hosea is sovereign love. That is to say that his love reigns supreme over all and will accomplish all of God's good and intended purposes and will not be defeated. If God is love, then the love we are talking about is holy love. It is completely free of selfish or sinful thoughts, ambitions, or motives. It is completely pure love. If God is love then the love we are seeing demonstrated in the book of Hosea is love that reflects everything that God is. It's not merely an act. It's not merely a story. It's not merely a one-time event. It is a reflection of an eternal God who loves because He is love. And so take everything that you know about God and apply that to His love as we see it unfolding. It's not merely about grace. It is truly about the God of grace who is loving so well, loving so entirely and perfectly. Let me go back and just give you all a refresher course just quickly where we ended last week. And I would remind you that last week at the end of the sermon, we did not end well. It was not good news. Remember, we discussed the fact that a separation had occurred. In Hosea's life, Gomer had left him for another man or other men. This is a painful time in Hosea's own personal life, but even on a broader scale, a national scale, Israel left God. Israel walked away from God, and God says to Israel, I will no longer have compassion on you, and you will no longer be my people, and I am no longer your God. 
And we discuss all of the, the ramifications that God is not abandoning Israel, but what the language in the Hebrew clearly communicates is that I am going to change the way that I am loving you. This is going to be a season of tough love for you. I am no longer going to pour out my favor, but I am going to pour out my chastisement in order to ultimately bring you back home. The one who has been loved so demonstrably has left. In a determined and sinful way, remember her words, let me go to my lovers. Let me go. Let me pursue my immoral thoughts. The covenant relationship had been fractured to the point that God says, you are no longer living as my spouse. God is not doing this. Israel is doing this. Gomer is doing this. And we are no longer functioning in a covenant union. There had been a separation. But then secondly, we did not end well because there was great confusion involved. The one who has been loved is living in a delusional state. And remember that, that Israel says and Gomer says of her lovers, they have given me all of these good things. They give me my water. They give me my grain. They give me my wool and my flax. And God says, no, you don't even know that it is me that has given it to you. And you attribute it to the idols. You attribute it to your lovers. And yet it is I who have given these things to you. She is literally deaf to the wooings and the warnings of the one who truly loves her. We did not end well because tough love was promised. God promised that for his chosen people, Israel, there would come a time when his love would no longer be found in favor, but in intervention and in judgment. God says very clearly in chapter 2 and verse 10 of Hosea that no one would be able to save Israel in that day. He was coming. He's going to enact swift judgment and nothing could turn his loving chastisement away. Brothers and sisters, the law of sin has now taken its full course. Judgment must take place. But wait. We need to ask one fundamental question. Has God changed? Has God changed? Is He not still faithful? Is He not still loving? In the presence of no love for Israel and for Gomer... God is about to show that, yes, He is still faithful. Yes, He has remained true to His covenant promises. And no, He has not changed. The next passage that we dive into this morning is going to show us that, no, God has not changed. No, God is not a liar. It is we who are unfaithful. And even in judgment, God is working so that ultimately He brings us back. There's only one reality for us to confess this morning, and that goes back to, again to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19 after we examine this text. We only love God because He first loved us. And not only did God love us first, but God has loved us first repeatedly. When we did not love God, God continued to interject His love, be it through intervention or be it through divine favor God loves first. And so enter the gospel. 
We did not end well. The story was bleak. But now beginning in verse 14 and on through chapter 3, we find that God gives the promise of a covenant to be renewed. Would you look at the text with me? God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Just as sure as God left us with the sour taste of judgment against his own people last week, so he now promises and pronounces his divine, sovereign and gracious, loving plan for them in the future. They have sinned without a doubt. But God's redemption and God's grace is larger than her sin. That's the good news of the gospel. Sin is great, but God is greater. Sin fouls, but God cleans and redeems. These people, even we ourselves as sinners, have, have placed at times ourselves inescapably under his chastisement. And he has to do that because he loves us, but he also promises a sweet return and a sweet reunion under his inescapable love. Israel left in the dark. Israel left on the verge of extinction. And how blessed it must have been to their ear to hear this simple promise. I will. I will allure her. I will bring her back. The language is quite intense here. God, in essence, says, hey, everybody, watch this. Behold this. What You think that was something? Watch this. Watch what I'm about to do. I'm going to bring her back. You thought I had cast her away. No, watch this. I'm bringing her back. God, speaking monergistically, speaking singularly, speaking of His divine love and initiative and action, says, I am going to pursue her even though she doesn't even know who I am, I'm coming after her. I'm going to woo her back. They're blind. They're stupid. They're deceived. They're confused. They're bent on chasing their false idols at this point. Gomer is bent on immorality and unfaithfulness to Hosea. God, using Hosea as a demonstration, says she doesn't even know where the good things came from. She has no clue. She is so confused, but go get her. Go get her. The language recalls the scene of his original covenant with Abraham. If you'll remember back to those passages in Genesis, when it was God who made the promises, God didn't go to Abraham and he didn't say to Abraham, now Abraham, here's the deal. You do this and I'll do this. God didn't say to Abraham, here's a covenant, Abraham, and here is your obligation in the covenant. What did God say to Abraham? I will, I will, I will. Abraham's laying over there asleep. He's totally removed from the equation. And yet God speaking to Abraham and Abraham's descendants continues to singularly take initiative and say, I am going to do this thing. I am going to see it through. But listen to the language of God. I will allure her. 
God speaks like a man who is pursuing his estranged wife. This is what Hosea is going to do with Gomer. I am going to allure her. And we all know what it's like, don't we, on a human level, men, as we allure our wives? Think back when you're dating your wife. Think back when you were trying to win her heart. All the, the fun things that we did. All the crazy things that we did. All the creative things that we did. Remember those days? We remember what they're like. Ladies, you remember what it's like to have your husband do that. Hopefully, we're still doing that. But we especially remember those early days when, when it was that game of trying to catch. Always a little bit afraid that there might be another guy competing with us. So that sense of urgency and that sense of needing to really pull in her affections and her heart. Humanly speaking, we're not always sure we can. I remember when Nicole and I were beginning our relationship with each other, there was no formal commitment, there was no ties. I was crazy about her. There's another guy on campus that, that was also crazy about my wife. And it was, you know, I would ask her for a date, then he would ask her for a date. And then I would ask her, and then he would ask her. And it drove me crazy. And I, I remember laying in my bunk at night, unsure that I would ultimately win her heart. And I remember the frustration and the anxiety over that. And humanly speaking, when we deal with allurement, we're not always sure we're going to win. But God is. God's not saying, I'm going to initiate this thing and I, I really hope it works. I really hope she likes red roses and not yellow roses. I really hope I'm communicating what I feel for her. No, God says unequivocally, I will do this. Brothers and sisters, make no mistakes. When God says I will, God does. He never says I will, but that he always follows through. God's unfailing grace is clear here. It cannot fail. It will not fail. The, the word allure in its broadest meaning means to entice. Even used in Hebrew at time as deceiving. That allurement. But in this context, it, it is definitely that positive sense of God's persuading power over the hearts of his people. A second point of consideration that I want you to notice that is not insignificant here in the text. But notice he makes the promise, I'm going to succeed in bringing my people back because I am the sovereign loving God. I cannot fail. But notice where he's going to do this. He's not bringing her back to Jezreel. He's not bringing her, as we've discussed in previous sermons, he's not bringing her back to the fertile crescent, that fertile valley where she loves to be. Now, where does he say he's going to take her? Look at your Bibles. He's going to take her where? To the wilderness. Nice honeymoon. To the wilderness. Now, if you were... Speaking to a Jewish person, 
And to that Jewish person, you said, you tell me, you play the word association game. I say one word, you give me what brings up in your mind. Wilderness. What are they thinking? Forty years. Moses. An entire generation dies. This is not good. And God is pointing her back to that very wilderness experience that would have come instantly to their mind because he says it's going to be like when you came out of Egypt. They knew exactly what God was saying. I'm taking you not to the Fertile Crescent. I am taking you into the wilderness again. What's in the wilderness, God? Me. You know what? You can't depend on the rivers. You can't depend on the crops. You can't depend on anything except me. I'm going to allure you and I'm going to take you to a place where you learn how loving and faithful I really am. I'm going to strip everything away from you. So that you will know it is I who have loved you. I who have redeemed you. God is going to break them of their idols. Brothers and sisters, God's covenant, faithful love to us at times involves taking us into the wilderness where all we have is God. We don't have the health. We don't have the financial security. We don't have the material abundance. We may not even have friends. But we have God. The point of Hosea is not just what God is doing. It is God. God says, I'm going to take you to a place where I am all there is. You remember the first wilderness wandering? Where did the food come from? God. Where did the water come from? God. Where did the protection from the surrounding nations come from? God. He says, we're going to go through remedial wilderness wandering one more time. And this time you're going to get it. Israel is going to learn the sufficiency of God. The idols that existed in the fertile valley of Jezreel. That place of fruitfulness could not match in a place of abundance what God was going to do in a barren wilderness. The idols could give their best. The idols could appeal to the flesh. They could appeal to the eye. They could appeal to every lust and make promises to fulfill their pleasures. And God says, even in that place of abundance, they can't do what I can do where there is nothing. I'm that great. I'm that good. But notice how God's going to do this. Most English versions have this translation and speak kindly to her. But but the Hebrew conveys something a little deeper than that. Yes, it has the idea of kindness, but it, it literally says, I'm going to speak to her heart. Uh, in a rough translation says, I'm going to speak upon her heart. When I allure her, I'm going straight for her heart. I'm not going to make her conform externally. As in the law, I am going to get to the heart. What does this sound like? Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Hello, this is Hosea's day. He says, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is this Jeremiah is talking about Hosea's circumstances. He says, but I in this covenant, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now, when they came out of Egypt, what covenant did God give them? Let's just little Old Testament refresher course. It wasn't the covenant with Abraham. It was the covenant with Moses, right? The Mosaic covenant. And remember of all the covenants that God gave in the Old Testament, this is the singular one where God says, you are bound. If you do this, then I will do this. And if you don't do this, then I will do this. Remember? It was a Caesarean vassal treaty where God says, my Blessing is dependent on your obedience. Only time God gives that covenant. But now God is coming back and he's saying they have shattered it. They have proved their sin. They have proved their need for me. And so I'm going to come in after those days, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 31, 33. And I will put my law within them and on their heart. This is no longer about external conformity. This is about writing a new law, a new covenant in the, in the heart. They will, I will be their God and they will be my people. God speaks upon Israel's heart. This is the same promise in chapter 2, verse 14, as we're seeing in Jeremiah 31. God says, I'm going to write it in her heart and I'm going to redeem her. I'm going to make a promise that signifies nothing other than a miraculous rescue. Now, go on, look. First of all, where is she? It's in the wilderness, right? What's going to happen in the wilderness? And I will give her vineyards from there. Wait a minute. Vineyards don't grow in the wilderness. They do if God says they do. The, the, the wilderness is not a place where you get these kind of things. Oh, but we're dealing with the God who spoke that place into existence. And so he writes the rules. He can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign. And notice what he goes on to say. This is amazing. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Now, what is Achor? Anybody know? Raise your hand if you know what the valley of Achor is. We, we would all do well, myself included, to be better students of Scripture and know our geography because this has significant meaning. Do you know what happened in Achor? Achor is the place where a man that we're all familiar with, a man by the name of Achan, had gone into Jerusalem or gone into Jericho, disobeyed God, taken things out, hidden them. Israel goes into battle. They suffer terrible defeat at Ai. And God says, there's someone who disobeyed in the camp. It's Achan. And I want you to bring Achan out and I want you to put him in the valley of Achor and I want you to stone him. I want you to stone his family. I want you to burn this, get rid of him. The valley of Achor was a place of judgment. 
It was the place where God, literally the, the name Achor literally means valley of trouble. And God says, in the valley of trouble, in the place where I judged, it will be called a door of hope. Can God do anything? Yeah, God can do anything. He can make vineyards grow in the wilderness. He can take a place of judgment and pain and sin and disobedience, and He can redeem it. That, brothers and sisters, is the hope of the gospel. God is a faithful redeeming God, and I will reestablish my relationship with them in a place where I had previously punished them. And she's going to sing. She's going to sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the days when we were newlyweds coming up out of Egypt. She's going to sing those halal psalms found there in Psalm 118 and Psalm 119 and, and in the surrounding psalms. She's going to sing those songs once again like she did when we were first married. This redemption is not going to be minimal. It is going to be for maximum impact in her life. There's no boundaries around God's covenant faithfulness. There's no boundaries that God's grace will not overcome when He sets His redeeming love on anyone. God's promises of redemption cannot fail. It could not fail for Israel. It cannot fail for for those whom God has in eternity past set His decree of love and redemption upon, God cannot fail. Our sin, no matter how great. My sin, as the hymn writer said, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to His cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. God's love is a redeeming love. It's a restorative love. If we are to look and understand the hope of the gospel, the, the hope of the promises that are being given here, we have to understand this. God's not saying, I'm just going to save them by the skin of their teeth. I'm not going to feed them just enough to get them by. What God is promising is a full restoration from sin to pre-fall conditions. Look down, verse 18. In that day that I do this, speaking now, even for us today, this is yet future. This is awaiting the fulfillment of, of a literal millennial kingdom here. He says, in that day, when I come and I do this, I will make a covenant with them with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. I'm going to abolish the bow. I'm going to abolish the sword. And I'm going to abolish war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety. This has not existed since the fall. 
The world, the world has always been in turmoil. Beasts and men have always feared one another. The ground has been cursed and it takes great labor to make the ground produce. God says, this is not minimal, this is total. This restoration I'm going to bring is going to, as it were, hit the reset button and restore it all to factory settings. It's going to be just like it was in the day that I created it. But I want you to notice, too, that there's hope in a changed relationship. Verse 16, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. God begins by issuing this segment of what is to come as an authoritative formula. He says, declares the Lord. Whenever you read that, this is not just God talking. This is God making a judicial statement. A royal decree declares the Lord. It is his utterance. It is his divine decree. And God here is going to initiate a great reversal. Remember just a few verses earlier, God says, you're no longer my people. I'm no longer your God. But he says now in verse 16 and 17, in a great reversal, you are going to call me Ishi. And we read that, we go, it's a big deal. What's Ishi mean? It's husband. God says, literally, you're going to call me your man, your husband. And you're not going to call me Baali anymore. That This name means master. It means a slave-owner relationship. He says, no longer are you going to view me as a taskmaster. No longer are you going to view me as cruel. You are going to view me as your loving husband. This would refer, the Ba'ali, that the master would refer to a woman who was owned by a man. We, we, don't, we don't do well with these things. In our culture, we don't own our women. But in Middle Eastern, Near Eastern culture, uh, the man would buy his wife, or it would be in some kind of an arranged marriage where he literally had legal rights to her, he owned her. They would have understood this, we don't. He says, you're not going to be in a relationship like that. It's not a forced marriage. It's not an arranged marriage anymore. It's going to be beautiful. And it's going to be willing. And it's going to be joyful. Reminds me, doesn't it, of you of Matthew eleven twenty nine when Jesus speaks and he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The burden of Jesus is light. The burden of the gospel of the new covenant is blessed. It's not servile. It's not forced. It's joyful. And this is the new relationship with the God of the covenant that they would soon enjoy. And this relationship was going to be so wonderful. So glorious. That it would erase every memory of of the 
immorality and the idols and all the other men that Gomer had known and all the other gross things and gross idols that Israel had been a part of. God said, my love for you, my relationship with you, your love for me is going to be so great because of what I'm doing in wooing and alluring you. You won't even remember these other gods. I'm going to remove the names of the Baals from your mouth. So they won't be mentioned by their names anymore. You're going to forget who they were. They're out of sight, out of mind, because the love of God is so constraining, so compelling, so overwhelming, that it eliminates everything else. Gone are the days when you serve me out of fear. Gone are the days when you serve me because you are forced to serve me. Now are the days that you worship and serve me because you love me. And you find no one greater. No need to recall them. Because God would become all in all to them. And it's going to be just like it was in the beginning. Adam and Eve, hey, before sin came, Adam and Eve, what else did they need? They had God. It was enough. They were satisfied with those visits in the evening as God came down and walked with them in the garden and talked to them. That was enough. Until sin entered, and then when sin enters, the discontentment, the disillusionment. When we start to look elsewhere, God says there's coming a day when I will deal with sin, not externally, but in the heart. And that will result in a new relationship. Where she says, you are, you're my husband. I have great love for you. What else do I need? Brothers and sisters, what a glorious thing to be loved by a God like this. What a light burden and a light yoke to love Him back. His ways are not burdensome. His ways are light and joyful and blessed. But that only happens as God comes and does His redeeming work in us. We cannot redeem ourselves. We don't desire to redeem ourselves. We desire the unfaithfulness of Israel and Gomer. But God in His grace, God in His mercy, God in His love allures us back. He brings us back into right relationship with Him. We'll continue on next week talking about the hope of a new time to come. The hope of a kingdom. The hope of the blessings of that wonderful period. Let's bow our heads and pray. Reflecting on the mercies and the grace of God as we prepare to receive the Lord's table. This morning as we prepare for communion. Let us reflect on the grace and the mercies of God shown to Israel. And now by even greater demonstration of grace, we 
are made partakers of that as well. Through Christ, through the new covenant, we know these mercies. We know this salvation. We know this redemption. I will speak unto her heart. Father, thank you for the grace and the mercy. Thank you for the work and the wooing of the Holy Spirit that regenerates and gives life. Thank you, Father, for your call. That while we are screaming, it is our lovers, it is our idols who give us satisfaction. Your call continues to work and to beckon and to bring your people home. Your love that is never failing. In spite of all the rebellion and all the things that we would do to say, as Gomer did, let me go to my lovers. Let me go to my idols. Let me go to my sin. Father, your grace will not let us go. You hedge us in so that we cannot find our way to hell. We cannot find our way to separation from you. Because you've set your love on us. And you've completed that love, Father, in your Son, Jesus. Who came and lived the life that we could not live. Absolutely perfect. And he died a death that only he could die and we could never even dream of dying. And that is a death that satisfied your wrath and your condemnation, and your holiness, and your righteousness. And He did not do it, Father, because He had sinned. He did it because we had sinned. And we praise You for that. And now Christ has risen to a new life, and He bids us through Your mercy and Your grace to join Him there. By our heartfelt conviction that Jesus is the Son of God and that He did these things in our place, the things we could not do, now we are invited to join Him in the final blessing of that, that we might be resurrected to new life in Christ. And it's not because of we who will, it's not because we desired you. It's not because we loved you, we hated you. But it's because you loved us. You've pursued us. You've wooed us. You've won us and you've redeemed us. That we can stand before you and say, You are our God. You're our husband. Christ, you are our bridegroom. And with the full assurance of the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee and our seal for the day of redemption, we just wait, Jesus. We eagerly await the return of the bridegroom for his bride, the bride of his choosing, the bride of his preparing, the bride of his cleansing. 
We await that full redemption when things are restored fully as they were in the beginning. Father, when we walk again with you and we talk with you, and we're not only free from the condemnation of sin, we're free from the very presence of sin. Father, as we eat and we drink this morning, Lord, may the very presence of Christ, the very redeeming work of Christ be real in us. May the presence of Christ and through His Spirit be upon us as we partake, remembering what God has done. Remembering not only the act of grace, but the God of grace. Help us now as we enter this time, Father. May we confess any known sin in our heart right now with the aid of Your Spirit. May we repent of it. May we leave it. May we run to the God who loves and cleanses. We ask this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.